VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast, Monday edition. Monday edition. I never said Monday edition before, but I felt like, you know, it, it felt just good. Just reminding so, yourself. Yeah, you know, it just feels good. I'm excited about today's topic. Um, but before we get into it, Zach, I mean, what have you been up to, man? What have you been drinking? Well, you know, I did a thing that I don't get to do all that often, which is uh, convince my wife to try not one, but two bottles of Pinot Noir. Caitlin is not a big Pinot Noir fan. It's not her, like, really yeah. favorite variety. No, she, her general complaint about Pinot Noir that I can, you know, countenance to some extent is, like, it's just too light-bodied for her. Um, she likes a more, mm. like, medium to full-bodied wine uh, on the red side. But, you know, sometimes the, the, the opportunity arises and we had a, a family gathering and uh, kind of like a charcuterie cheese kind of appetizer meal. So it was kind of like not a full-on sit-down meal exactly. And, and the, the tone of the thing was, was it ended up being kind of Pinot Noir-centric. So I had a couple of, of nice bottles. I had a, both from Oregon, uh, one from a winery, Love & Squalor, their Temperance Hill a Vineyard Pinot. And then the other from Big Table Farm, which is one of my favorite producers down there. Uh, and this was from, I think, the Sunnyside Vineyard, if I remember correctly. Um, and it was really nice. I mean, I really enjoy Pinot Noir. It's like I do have to kind of find my opportunities. Sometimes it's like when I'm out with uh, people who are not my wife. It's like often mm-hmm. what we don't get because, again, I don't have to, like, you know, convince her that it's worth drinking, sort of. And uh, just, you know, a, a a delight, a, a, a wine, I, a variety I love. Uh, uh, I love ones from Morgan a lot. And just a nice wine because it's great for that kind of setting too where like, you know, there's a lot to eat, but the, you really have time, at least in my experience, to kind of like think about the wine, enjoy it. Pinot kind of needs to be, for me at least, good Pinot Noir, you need to kind of be able to devote some attention to. It's not a, to me, it's not like a wine you sort of drink while you're doing other stuff because then you're kind of missing the point, at least as far as I'm concerned. It's like, you know, it's mm. not a, it's a complex grape and I like to give it the, I don't know, consideration it deserves, at least in my opinion. So that's what I've Zach, been do you ever with. get wines by the glass? When I go out? Yeah. Yeah. From time to time, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, we are generally like when we go out, there's a lot of um, bringing bottles of wine because we have a lot of it at home. And um, the only way I will like ever be able to get more wine is to drink the wine that we already have. I mean, that's actually mm-hmm. why I get new wine all the time. But uh, the way I convince myself that it's okay is if we drink the wine that we currently have. And actually, the funniest one is we bring a lot of times, there's a pizza place near us. It's like very kid friendly, which, you know, for us is a plus. And I, we bring bottles of wine every time and literally every time. And we've probably been in a dozen times in the last, you know, two years or something. Uh, they're like, um, well, we, we do charge a a, a fee for for bringing your own wine and i'm like yeah we we know it's fine it's like we're not you know and it's like 10 bucks which is hilarious to me that they like they, it's kind of like the servers are always like kind of like embarrassed to bring it up but i'm like it, it just whatever so but sometimes yeah when i'm out i'll get a glass of wine i would say you know not that often i'm more of a mm-hmm. like bottle of wine or cocktails kind of person but sometimes it's just the thing you need and and when you're getting you know, it's more often not when I'm out with Caitlin, but when I'm with other people and it's just yeah. not convenient to kind of solely rely on bottles. But yeah. yeah. Do you ever do the corkage fee thing, Adam? Uh, once in a while. For like celebratory occasions when you want to bring your own bottle? Yeah. Uh, it's just so expensive. So here. rarely. Yeah. So rarely. I mean, I mostly do like what we talked about on Friday. I'll, I'll go to like Peking Duck House or right. something like that and bring like fun wines mm-hmm. where you know, they're not going to charge anyways. And 
yeah, I, it's very rare that I'll go to like a fancy restaurant in New York and pay the corkage. And I don't know. I also like I don't like dealing with the the psalm. With it. Like, you know what I mean? And like, I feel like they're judging you for what you brought. Like, oh, what did you bring that's so special that oh, you could have to on our list? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. yeah I mean, so, it makes sense. So I don't need that baggage, man. No. I don't need that <laughs> attitude. So I just like, I don't do it. You know, I'm like, I, I like these wines. I'll drink them at home. I don't need you to like judge what I think is a special bottle compared to what's on your fucking list. Mm -hmm. So, uh, no, I don't do it. So no. <laughs> no. And I think and I love that. And I love that Zach just confirmed for me. Oh, that is 100% what's happening. Well, 10, 10 bucks at a pizza place is different. I think. Yeah. yeah. No, but if you bring in a bottle of wine to a, to a restaurant with like an extensive wine list, I mean, sometimes by judging, I mean I should just say like it, it the psalm is going to take a look at what you're bringing in, right? Because they're they're if nothing else curious. curious yeah. And I think it's one of those things where like if you're paying thirty, forty, fifty, or who knows more dollars to have that bottle of wine opened, you know there is that thing too of like okay, well how nice of a bottle of wine are you bringing in to make that added on top worth it versus opening that bottle at home and getting something off the list at a restaurant, which is yeah. why you know corkage fees exist to some extent and why they've continue to go up and up in price because, you know, mm -hmm. I think there are a way to disincentivize that behavior in a lot of cases, but it's also the case that like, you know, people sometimes just like, it's like, it just sort of is like baffling to me, the things that people would bring in and be willing to pay a lot, a fair bit of money to have me or someone else open just so they didn't order off the list, including a few times like wines where I was like, you are paying more for this wine than like we would have charged like between what you paid retail and the corkage for what this wine would be on our list, which seems like you're just making a bad choice here. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I haven't thought of that. Interesting. Yeah. Joanna, what are you drinking? Um, I had a really good cocktail recently. Um, we went to a new restaurant downtown called Le Gratin. Um, and had a cocktail with gin, long vermouth, cucumber, gentian, and absinthe. And I think Douglas fir. There was like some sort of sprucey, furry note there, and that was really good. And it was served in a, up in a martini glass. Um, but that's kind of the extent of my cocktail drinking this past week after the holiday. Um, had some mediocre wine. Mediocre. Nothing to speak of. What about you, Adam? Well, so I'm in your same boat. I've had a dry week this week mm -hmm. um, or this past week. Like uh, I felt like Thanksgiving, we kind of had a lot of fun. And then I had my brother-in-law's engagement party the Saturday after Thanksgiving. So this entire week I have abstained. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess going back to then, I had a really nice bottle of Hirsch Pinot Noir that I'd say for Thanksgiving. Nice. And I also... At my brother-in-law's um, engagement party, his soon-to-be father-in-law is a—I don't want to call him a tater, maybe a tater in training. He oh is a—he's a big bourbon collector. Okay, Adam, would you call that a tater tot? Oh hey, my god! Oh, maybe gosh. he's a tater tot. <laughs> um, sorry, dad jokes are my <laughs> yeah. So you know, he like used to be a big craft beer guy, and then I guess switched to bourbon um, hmm. at, when he retired. And really likes, like, the hunt. Like, that's kind of how he got into it is he's one of these guys that, like, he'll he'll find out that a store in Vermont has, like, this one bottle and he'll drive the three hours to it 
to you know if, if they're on vacation in Vermont he was telling me and then like he'll go get the bottle it's, he's like a dusty hunter yeah seems to be in, seems to be into it it's like his <laughs> it's like one of his things he's into which is cool uh but so he had some some fun bottles that he opened up including some really rare Russell's reserve stuff um we drank some interesting stuff from Willet. Zach's favorite. Yeah. We also had um, some really cool old Forester that's been on our list before. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't get him to open any of the pappies I tried. <laughs> They're I not just, opened. And I was just like, come on, your daughter's getting married. <laughs> <laughs> Share this with me. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> but that didn't happen. It's fine. I'm not upset about it. I'll try again at the wedding. Next time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so so that, that's about it. Um, mm-hmm. So I think this is a fun one today because I also think it's very, well, I'll say Is it, it fun? <laughs> well, we'll see. I think it's interesting. We'll see what you think fun is. So San Francisco Chronicle reported this past week, the headline was, was very clickbaity, mm-hmm. very clickbaity, probably so clickbaity. Some people, some wine writers we know wouldn't like it because it's so clickbaity. <laughs> and basically the the headline was wine country has never been more inhospitable to children. It's right? less kid friendly than ever. I'm more inhospitable. <laughs> I like, I like my, that's how I would have written it. But anyways, the piece basically looks at what has happened since the pandemic and how wineries in California specifically have tightened their policies, policies even more to ban children from being at the winery. So anyone under 21, right, right, cannot be at the winery. And I think, you know, first of all, I want to I say this discussion is focused on California wineries because I know a lot of wineries in other regions of the country where this is not the case. Like if you go to Virginia wineries, there's kids everywhere. It's really focused on Napa and to some extent Sonoma. Yes, it is. Oh, sure. Napa and Sonoma. It's focused on Napa and Sonoma. Right. They they look at so they look at Napa and Sonoma. So I guess yeah, fine wine regions. And uh and they basically say that children have, you know, as COVID hit and reservations became more popular and now they're you know, what you're seeing is that a lot of these wineries are not going back on the policies that they had instituted and kind of used COVID almost as an excuse to institute these policies in the first place, right? So like the wineries, there were wineries that always wanted to go reservation only. COVID allowed that to happen. They're staying reservation only. Wineries who always didn't really love the idea of kids because there was complaints from other patrons. Right. Now there's this, you know, excuse to just kind of keep kids not Invited and initially it was because kids couldn't be vaccinated, right? Exactly, so, yeah. so basically, it's like, well, if you can't be vaccinated, we don't want you here. Now it's just like we don't allow kids at the winery, and there has been some pushback from parents. What the thing that the article sort of talks about the most is like the trend amongst our generation, mm-hmm. which is like we take our kids everywhere, right? Like millennials have decided that like the kid is the new accessory, <laughs> and basically like you take the kid to do whatever it is you were going to do, and I think in a lot of cases that is very true. And so there are some some parents that are upset about this, right? That are like, this isn't fair. Like I want to be able to go wine tasting, but also bring my kids. I don't want to have to like plan a vacation to wine country when I'm in my 40s and also a parent at the, that time, mm-hmm. or, you know, 30s and a parent and have to arrange babysitting or have this be a, you know, a par- adult only Adults trip only, or whatever. Yeah. I want to be able to bring my kids along too. This prevents me from doing that and makes this something that I will maybe not do now. Right. Like I'm going to be less willing to go to Napa or less willing to go to Sonoma if I can't bring my kids. So I think it's an interesting conversation to have because 
I see both sides of this. Me too. And, and what's really interesting to me is I thought about this when I when I proposed this guy this to you guys as a topic is actually this uh, this Monday, um, this past Monday, a friend of mine WhatsApp me and she was like, "Hey, she's, she's from she's in Europe," and she was like, "Hey, I'm coming to New York for a week. She used to live in New York, and I want to see all of my friends, and I want a place where I can like post up for like three to four hours." And just tell my friends I'm going to be here and they can come by and see me. By the way, a lot of them have kids. Where should I go? And I immediately suggested a brewery. Oh, my God. Me too. Like that was the first. I was like, I was hey. like Houston Hall. Yeah. Finback. Mm-hmm. Like, I suggested uh, Grimm. If, it, if you want to Williamsburg, I suggested Torch and Crown. Like all these places were breweries. Mm-hmm. And she was like, oh, that's awesome. My friends are going to love that. And it's funny that I immediately thought about that. But then when you th- – but wine, because I think it's so different, you don't ultimately think, oh, I would suggest a winery or – would ultimately want to see kids at a winery. So I don't know. I'm I'm curious because, again, like I said, I think there's a lot to talk about here because I I do see both sides. What do you both think about this? As the person with kids, why don't you jump in, Zach? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Yeah. So I actually don't see both sides to this. And I think I'm going to come down on the side that you might not expect, which is that in places like Napa Valley, don't bring your fucking kids. I'm serious about this. I love my children. We do a lot with them. We are 100% those parents who... I guess, treat our kids as an accessory. And they come to a lot of things with us. But we also recognize that part of having children, especially young children, is that you don't get to do everything you want to do as a parent. Like if you want to go to Napa Valley, you want to go to like the the fancy high-end wine, uh, you know, experiences that they're putting together now, leave your kids at home or bring them and find a babysitter or something. Like mm-hmm. it is not the, the entire world does not need to be open to children and to parents with their children. Many, many things are. And there are many great wine regions that will, as we talked about, gladly welcome you in, whether it's Virginia, whether it's other parts of California, whether it's uh, here in Washington State or uh, the Willamette Valley in Oregon or basically anywhere that's not Napa and some of Sonoma. But if you want to go spend $150 for an experience at a winery, yeah, your kids can't come. And that's okay. Like, I don't think I don't think this hand wringing about like, well, I, you know, I wanted to put together this elaborate event and pay for a driver and set up all these, uh, you know, tastings and whatever. But like, oh, my God, I have to pay for a babysitter for my kid. Like, this seems like kind of ridiculous to me. And and I would not even as someone with kids who is generally tolerant of children in a lot of places and does think that there are places that it's good to take your children from time to time, you know, whether that's a, a restaurant that isn't super kid friendly. I mean, you don't want to take them somewhere that is actively hostile to children to occasionally to, you know, cultural events, things like that. Kids need to learn how to behave in those spaces. And the only way to do it is to put them in them from time to time with, you know, guidelines and the willingness to walk out if you have to, because the kid won't behave. But a, a really high end wine tasting experience is just not that space. It's just not for kids and trying to make it for kids when the space doesn't want to be for kids is I think a kind of fucked up entitlement that a certain set of parents tend to have because they, decide that when they have children, all of a sudden the world has to bend over backwards to accommodate them. And I think that is not a purely our generation thing. I think it has existed for a while, but our generation Mm -hmm. definitely seems less willing than ever to accept that having children involves any level of, let's say, compromise on what you do and do not get to do, especially when those children are young. If you want to take your 15-year-old to Napa and find something for them to do during the day, fine. You know, bring your 17-year-old and make them drive you around. I don't know. But like, leave your four-year-old at home. That's what I would do. Or we wish wouldn't go there. That's just not, we're not taking a trip to Napa with young kids. It's just not happening. Right. I think what's smart about, and the article covers this, is that there are a number of places that have family days 
once a month or, you know, have certain allowances and acknowledge that that's something that people want to do, but generally don't allow children. I think that's a smart, like smart approach, because what I was thinking of here was, you know, after two really hard years of the pandemic, can these places really afford to lose the business that they might lose by not allowing children? And I know we've talked about how tasting rooms are changing and they're more, you know, the experience is more premium now and they're charging more. But I don't know. It just it it struck me as something that would be maybe not smart from a business point of view. But then I guess if there are a number of people who are complaining about the children, then they'd be losing their business too. I mean, I guess they can't afford it, right? Because a lot of these places aren't going back on it. Like they're, they're, they have happier customers. I mean, I guess the, the thing I think about here is, well, first, here's why I think kids in a theory could work, but doesn't, right? Yeah. Because this is America. And I think there's a lot of different parenting styles here. Mm -hmm. And in other countries where maybe there's, um, one more dominant parenting style, for example, France, right. where a lot of the kids all are raised in the same way. They are taught to behave in public in a very different way from a very early age in terms of when they're already taken out to eat and things like that. You know, maybe you can you can expect that most children will be behaved and the parents will know the children aren't behaved when to take the child away. Mm-hmm. I think what happened, you know, the problem with the U.S. is that I mean, you see it all the time in restaurants, right? Like there are always the parents that know when to take the child up from the table when they're throwing a tantrum and, and leave the restaurant. There are the other parents that like let the kid run rampant in yeah. the restaurant, right? Cry and out. like cry it out, run <laughs> rampant. And like they think that that's because they're enjoying. I mean, we saw it in the airport. Right. On the way back from Italy, where there were these two American parents who just like let their kid run all over like the basically the restaurant that we were sitting in mm-hmm. while other people were trying to, you know, relax for a flight because they wanted to have their own meal. Right. Which yeah. isn't fun to anyone else when the kid's coming up to them. So I can see that at the winery. Like if you're paying 150 bucks sure. and there's a kid who decides that they want to get to know you and walks over and wants to chat. Like that's great. The kid's adorable, but that's not the experience you want to have at that. Or that you're paying for. Right. That you're paying for. Yeah. The only way that I could see that this at all would work is if there either are these designated family days, but it has to be very clear because if I, if I want to go to the winery on that day, I need to know very clear that there's going to be a lot of families there yeah. or you do what like happens at some of these fancy resorts where there is like a kid Section. designated area. Yeah. I was thinking right? like, that too. This is, it's a, it is a cheaper tasting. Mm. It is outside, you know, it is in this designated area where there's games and things like that. And like, yeah, you're not going to get to taste the highest end wines because we also can't have that one-on-one experience with you. Like it's not fair to the staff either to have to try to interact with you when you're also trying to parent your kids. Mm -hmm. But like if you want to come here and have a glass or two of wine, you know, in our gazebo, maybe that works. Like like one of the wines I can think of like that in Napa would be something like Ashes and Diamonds, right, Zach? Like it's – they have this huge outdoor space that kind of looks like a brewery. Mm-hmm. You know what right. I mean? Like, and that's kind of that's what the I think. Aesthetic they're going yeah, I think for. that's what they're trying to encourage. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but like the kids should not be allowed inside at all. Not even go to the bathroom. Like there should be an, <laughs> another place where you take, no, seriously, where you take the kids. It's like a designated area that doesn't cross through that, that room inside that they have. That's very fancy. And that is very expensive. Mm-hmm. Like that's the only way I think it works or else. Yeah, it, it, it is – you have to think about both sets of people and in a fine wine region like Napa and Sonoma where the goal is not just the tasting. It's getting people to sign up for the wine club, mm-hmm. yeah. right? The experience is just as important as 
the the wines they're tasting. And if that experience is ruined because you get that one family that doesn't know when to take the kid away. You don't get the repeat business. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and maybe that family doesn't come back either because like they were just there to get a break, man. You know, so I, I think the wineries clearly have realized that there there's more payoff to not allow children than to have allowed children in the past because they're clearly not going back. I think as long as there are ones that do and that's nice and people can go to them, then that's fine. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the fancy ones. Yeah. And, and I think the other piece of this to remember is like the experience that people are having in Napa and Sonoma by and large setting aside children in general is already a very exclusive experience, right? Given the price point, given the difficulty of securing reservations in some places, it you know, given the just general challenges of like, you know, the cost of, of lodgings in Napa, et cetera, that region as a whole has already decided we don't really care about being, you know, we're a wine region for the very for either the very wealthy Elite. or the yeah, people yeah. who want to have a splurge of, you know, kind of trip. In the same way that I bet there are lots of, you know, Adam was talking about resorts, I am sure there are plenty of high end resorts that you know, I guess maybe they don't technically forbid children from being there. Maybe some of them do. But I do think that, like, it's not set up for that. It's not like, why would you want to pay for a child to be there? Like, if you have the means to do that, find another thing to do with your child, you know, or or wait until you can, you know, find a thing to do with your child. Like, I just I come back to this whole piece of like, even you, the parent, are not really going to enjoy yourself. I don't think if you are like harried, you're trying to you know, keep track of a potentially unruly child. You're feeling bad about the fact that they might be, you know, ruining someone else's experience. And like, like, why do you want that for yourself? Find it, find a thing to do. I don't think it has to be exclusive of wine. I think there are plenty of places that are great places to take kids. And, and whether it's, you know, Adam, you brought up Europe and what, you know, we took Saul to a number of wineries when we were in Europe. Granted, he was very little, so it's not like he was doing much, but like, you know, they're also not set up for, you know, $150 tasting experiences with very few exceptions. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, it's exactly. A different vibe. It's like going to Virginia or, or the Willamette Valley or something. It's like pretty cash. Like, you know, they just kind of like, great. Here's, you know, the tasting often is like, you know, just like a, the tasting room such as this is just like a table. And like, there's some bottles of wine. Like it just isn't the same scope as what Napa in particular is setting out to do. And in the same way that you would not take generally your children to like a two or three star Michelin restaurant, because like, it's also not fair to the kid who has, expects a kid to sit through that. I mean, the thing about the tasting experiences in Napa now too is they're, you know, an hour, hour and a half long investment of time. They come, they're like going to a meal, which is great. I mean, it's what they're setting out to do, but that's just not a reasonable thing to expect of a kid, I guess, unless you stuff them in front of a screen and then like, but why are we doing this? Like it just, right. it just I don't, I have a sympathy in one hand as a, obviously as a parent, it sucks to realize that things you might want to do are close off from you or difficult, more difficult to do. I mean, as have has come up many times on this podcast before, you know, Caitlin and I don't get to go out to dinner as often because we have kids, but we also didn't like that. We knew that when we had kids and we right. get to take them out sometimes. And it's actually kind of delightful occasionally because especially, you know, Solomon, our older child, it's like learns to look forward to those experiences when we go right. somewhere nicer. And he, he understands that it's a different expectation and it's fun to share something that we both love and care about with our children. And, you know, one day that might be wine and it already is sometimes and it might be, you know, for a long time, it might be, you know, less, you know, fancy wine experiences. And then when he's old enough to legally do it and he wants to, if he wants to take a trip to Napa, then we'll, you know, we'll figure that out. Or when he and Lila are old enough, we'll all go as a family and, you know, we can do that. But like, 
just to say that like we should be able to bring our children anywhere we want just because we want to again i just i don't I, it, it's not who is it good for it's not good for anyone in that exchange i don't think i agree i mean i think it's tough to say but it just it is what it is it just makes a lot of sense though yeah it's like all these things like I get that you have the money to also do it, but you have to like it's being a thoughtful consumer, right? It's like you mm-hmm. have the money to do this thing, but for someone else, while they have the money to do this as well, it might be more of a stretch. This might be something they saved up for for a very long time. Right. And you ruining their experience just because you also want to have the experience is not a nice thing. Mm-hmm. Like, and so I think it's, it's, you know, it's within the rights of the, you know, the winery to say we are going to not allow this. Like, I think, you know, if you're a thoughtful person, then it's a, it's a different thing, but most people just aren't when it comes to their families. Yeah. It's like, it's, you know, and so therefore they want to putting ever them themselves first, which is basically human nature, but then you wind up ruining someone else's experience. And again, for the winery, it's all about the experience of every guest so that they get that sale and mm-hmm. they can't risk it. Maybe even if that family was going to buy, you know, every one of the families going to get signed up for the list. It doesn't matter if three other or four other tables walk out without signing up because they had a bad experience because they were a screaming child. Right. Well, and the other piece of it too is like you also have to look at it from the winery standpoint on this, which is a very clear cut no no one under 21 policy is much easier to enforce than a case by case. Like, uh, well, okay, we allow kids, but only like, I mean, I get what you say about sequestering them in some sense. And maybe there are ways at certain spaces to do that, but it's like, it is, I get also, you know, just so much easier to draw that very clear, discreet line and say, this is a place where we sell and serve alcohol. It's for people who are old enough to legally consume and purchase it only. And it doesn't matter to me, you know, you just, you don't have to start, you know, kind of being like, well, my, 15 year old is really well behaved or they're just going to sit and look at their phone the whole time. Anyhow, who gives a shit? I get why you might be inclined to sort of try and finesse that, but it's just, like I said, from a business standpoint, from an operation standpoint, you know, it's just so much simpler to say, this is our policy and that's it. And, you know, we look forward to welcoming, you know, you in whenever and your children in when they're of legal age. And that's that. And, you know, Mm -hmm. again, there are things that I would like to do with my children that I cannot because they are not old enough in, in whether legally or just, you know, kind of developmentally, but that's just the deal. Like the, hopefully those things are Napa Valley's not going anywhere. So that trip to Napa will be yeah. there, you know, in the future, whether it's for you and your kids when they're old enough or you, when you can get it together to find someone to watch your children for some amount of time or whatever. I don't know. Um, and while it isn't like if we said a bunch of times, there are lots of other wine regions that would be happy to have your business and will, you know, yeah. gladly find something for your kids to do and you'll pay less money and probably have a nice time without all the rigmarole. Yeah. So this brings me back full circle, though, to the, to the initial question, which is, should we be allowing kids at breweries? Like, because mm-hmm. I wonder if part of the reason that a lot of these parents feel like they can bring their kids to the winery is because – They can bring their kids to the brewery and no one ever says anything. And I get that it's a very different experience and a seven or eight dollar or maybe now nine or ten dollar pint of IPA is very different than a hundred and fifty dollar tasting. But you can also see how for some consumers they don't make that connection. Like this is a place that makes beer and lets me bring my kid. This is a place that makes wine and should let me bring my kid. Mm -hmm. Well, I do think the fundamental difference besides just the cost of the 
beverage being consumed is the tenor of the experience, right? Yeah, I mean, the atmosphere. A, a, breweries the closest a brewery will come to a tasting is like you can get a flight of beers right you know you get a flight mm-hmm. of taste but it's not i don't think any brewery in the world maybe i'm wrong podcast at vinepair.com if you know of a brewery that does this there's no one that's like here's our 150 dollars tasting um you know with your walk around tour of the tanks and stuff i i just think it's like beer is so different that i'm not i don't doubt that you're uh right adam i think that some people who have gotten used to being able to freely bring their children to to tap rooms and stuff like that are like, well, what do you mean? I can't bring my kid to the winery. Why is that any different? It's, you know, I can bring them to the brewery. But I do think that from the brewery standpoint, like they don't have the same business model. They want to sell pints on site and maybe mm-hmm. some stuff to go. They're not trying to sell thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollar club memberships where beer gets shipped to your house every month. And so they want everyone who will come to be there. And if it means that they have to put games in the corner for kids to play with and there's people running around, well shit, there's dogs and kids and who knows what else going on in a your average brewery also there are some breweries around me at least that are 21 up um that are like mm. no kids some that are no kids and no dogs which feel to me feels like a bold stance in in the craft beer world but uh yeah no dogs <laughs> this, this brewery is like very particular about their like you know house yeast strain and i guess they're concerned that dogs would bring yeast in or, i don't know it, it, it there that's their policy or maybe the owners are just really allergic to dogs i don't have any idea but uh it, it, the point is I, there are breweries that do exclude minors. Um, I think maybe for licensing reasons in some cases, but they are few and far between. And and I don't think that there's any reason why we should be like telling breweries, well, you're fucking it up for Napa Valley. So you should, t- you know, <laughs> cool it on the letting kids in thing. Um, right. I think that would prompt two middle fingers and rightfully so. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's a, an easier comparison to fine dining. Like you said before, mm-hmm. it's a luxury experience. You're spending a lot of money on it. And again, maybe there are luxury beer experiences out there that I'm not aware of, but I think more generally. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. Well, let's know what you think. Hit us up at podcast at If you agree, if you don't agree, if you're a winery that has a policy or doesn't, mm-hmm. that'd be really interesting to hear. Uh, and I'll talk to you both on Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.